Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Telecube Tuesdays. We are live, apparently, and Dwayne Forrester is here. Lovely guy who I've met a couple of times. I met you at PubCon, I think. Yes. Uh, we had a very, very, very quick chat, and I was going to interview, but I didn't have the time, so I had to get you on the show this time. There we go. And you get the song. A quick hello, and we're good to go. Welcome to the show, Dwayne Forrester. <laughs> okay, I like that, Jason. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I love I love your name. It's really easy to sing. Uh, I also love your name because you've got... <laughs> Literally great... never been told that before. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, I'm such a charmer. Uh, oh, I, I was looking at your brand up. I always do this. If we can show the brand up, um, you've got a lovely, lovely brand up. You've got your Twitter boxes and uh, some pictures and a knowledge panel. There you go. Uh, mm -hmm. That's in the US, uh, linked to Rand Fishkin, Amber Naslin, Jay Bear, and Martin and Handley. You're terribly well-connected. My only criticism, and I yes. might, if I might, or two criticisms. Well, number mean. one is your site doesn't rank number one. Yes. And number two is you don't put very many images in your tweets. Yes. Uh, my tweets are almost exclusively um, news and information from other sources. So oh, I simply okay. share the link and it's all industry information. Um, I don't do um, a lot of personal stuff in which I would share a lot of images on right. Twitter. Um, so, uh, sorry, excuse me. So that means that yeah. you're useful but not pretty. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> as, as I'm sure anyone watching this can, you know, immediately determine for themselves. Um, and then uh, on the other point, uh, what was the second point again? That uh, so your error. site isn't ranking number one. That, right. Uh, Rainforest.com. Uh, I have not published anything to that blog in years. So right. to me, this is absolute proof that the search engine is operating the way it's supposed to operate because there is nothing timely about DwayneForster.com. Uh, it's it's a space for me. Obviously, I'm a landholder because I don't want anyone else having that domain. Um, but there's just not a lot that's kind of important that I feel needs to be shared there. I'll share it on social media directly. I'll post directly to Twitter. I'll oh, talk okay. to folks on Facebook, Instagram, that kind of idea. But uh, I tend to be very audience-specific when it comes to different messages I might have rather than on my blog. Ooh, talking of which, audience-specific, what yeah. I saw is, uh, in fact, in your knowledge panel, Google cites four different sources, depending mm -hmm. on the country. Uh, if we can show that, uh, we've got a wide range of sources. We've got Search Engine Journal, we've got Yext, we've got Ungagged, where you're looking a bit worse for the wear, if I might say so, <laughs> Bright Edge. Uh, and in the US, it tends to be um, Ungagged. Yeah. Whereas in the UK, Bright Edge comes up and Yaks comes up. Can you think of any reason for that? Because you're looking yeah. smarter and the British like smart people. Well, you know, it's funny because um, on Gagged, I, I think the reason that they're popping so prominently is um, as a conference, they've been kind of growing rapidly yeah. and gaining a lot of exposure. So I think the brand is being brought forward by the engine because the engine senses that, hey, look, this is important in the market and in the space and the vertical as we start narrowing down, the signals are telling us that this is like a pretty prominent concept. Whereas, and this might be a misfire of query deserves freshness, right. because I could argue that PubCon would be, or even the search engine land series, the search or SMX series 
would be more prominent co uh, conferences. And yet, in terms of mm. freshness, Ungagged is the newest mover on the stage and therefore is getting that. Well, if I may criticize both SMX and PubCom, both of them have organizations on their site that mean that the content is replaced rather than moved or right. And, and so you, Google ends up going, I don't know if I'm if I don't know where to yeah. find this contact. Where where is Dwayne on this site? Whereas on Gagged, you, you don't move. So I think that might be part of it. It could it could easily easily be a part of the entire scenario as well, Jason. Mm -hmm. um, I will say this: I generally don't pay a lot of attention to my footprint. Um, I woke up one year, several years ago, and I'm saying several. I mean, like ten or twelve, and um, I was kind of surprised that I was like the first three pages of search results, and then I started to realize that that's not necessarily it shouldn't be a surprise to me given the amount of public, the publicity that I've had, the work that I've done, the authoring that I've done, the writing for third parties, the interviews I've given, those things should be populating that. And that's ultimately what is populating it. And so at that point, I thought, look, I'm not going to really worry about curating my footprint per se. Uh, I am going to stay focused on helping businesses and answering questions and continuing to feed this machine, if you will, but not in a directed sense, right, you know? Right. And so I'm like, I'm like, if I wanted to direct it, I probably could pick publications and double down and get involved. Cause like what's not popping there is, you know, I've written for um, New York times, uh, Inc magazine, Ooh, like all types of places. Yeah. But they were also very moment in time. It was an opportunity that came up you know, you write, you drop, it gets old, and it's not a continuing scenario. And so to me, again, that perfectly fits what the search engine is showing us. We see that, and to me, that makes perfect sense. It's what's very relevant, which is the, the search engine. Uh, and the other thing I notice is that you're not actually in the Google Knowledge Graph. If you ping the new Google Noodle, the Google Knowledge Graph API, uh, right. you don't ping up. And some people have been saying, well, the Google Knowledge Graph isn't as good as people think it is. But in fact, what it, I think it is, is that you're in Google Books. And that Google Books is pushing you into the Knowledge Graph. We get that with Rand Fishkin. We get that with right. an awful lot of authors. Sorry, go ahead. Right. And, and here's the thing. Like, there's no, there's no value to Google in over-indexing on any entity. <laughs> in fact, there's a cost to them for doing that. They've already done the work to bring you in. There's no point in bringing you in another location. Brilliant. And then they've got two instances of you. It's not like maintaining the two instances is a cost, but the maintenance of crawling and updating, there is a hard cost. And if you extrapolate that across millions of entities, it starts to have a cumulative effect. And for a public company that relies on revenues coming from areas that are, you could argue, starting to see the beginning of flattening on the curve, you want to maintain a very strict control on cost. And so that expense side, they watch it very clearly. Or, you know, it could just be that it's not as smart as, you know, we all believe it is. I think you're right, is that there is no point in feeding the machine from multiple sources because it will right. create conflict and duplicates. But that wasn't the topic for today. That was a lovely right. discussion. <laughs> I'm very, very happy we had it because it's my favorite topic. Um, but we're oh, going to be talking... I could talk knowledge graph all day long and how important it is to companies today. It oh, well, is maybe we should have chosen that not, instead of... Listen, not Google's knowledge graph, oh but the God. concept of knowledge graph. 
how important it is and how businesses are missing golden opportunities with this. So if we can get there, look, I'm happy to go there, right? But Jason, I'll follow you anywhere. No, no, no. Well, in fact, that that whole point of build your internal knowledge graph, and that gives you the control to feed it to the machines. And we're talking to John Alderson from Yoast who was saying, yeah, okay, get your, that's the control you have. And you talk to Andrea Volpini from WordLift, 100%. But isn't that what Yext is all about? Knowledge graphs. Actually, that is exactly what Yext is all about. Which that is was part a brilliant of transition. Did you notice? Yeah, it was. I like how you did that. Right, it was very smooth. <laughs> um, but it's actually part of the reason that I'm at the company. Mm. Um, you know, like four years ago, I went in and had a bunch of interviews with people, and I actually got a look at the product pipeline, and so I knew where we were developing the company when I decided to come aboard the company. And for me, it was a perfectly natural fit to go from working at a search engine to working at a company now that is in its core competency about solving search. And look, that might sound very self-serving. That might sound like a marketing statement, whatever. You know what? Just go look where the analysts have positioned the company. We are positioned with Google and with Microsoft and with those tech companies and those search companies. And that's not our choice. Those That's stock analysts saying, you are like these businesses. And that's based on them looking at the technologies we have. So it's a very, to me, it's a very comfortable fit, but it's also one that I'm massively passionate about because I have a background in it. And honestly, I'll put it this way. If you are going to invest in something and you choose to build an actual knowledge graph for your business, you have built a de facto digital asset that is usable. This isn't something that is like, well, you know, we have a really good sales funnel, right? Mm. Like a sales funnel is not a sellable object, okay? A knowledge graph, that is an actual asset and can be exploited to the company's benefit. You know, you actually touched on this, Jason. You want to get in to what is most important to the engines today? Okay, well, we're going to talk about natural language processing. That started several years ago. Google kicked us all off. Let's put it at 2012 by saying they moved to a knowledge graph. Ultimately, what that meant was it allowed them to move to semantic search, which we're all bored of talking about because we've heard it so many times. But but people who aren't in the industry haven't heard it so so much. So we're, we're, we're saying I'm so bored because I keep hearing it. But even those of us in the industry, we at some point have to ask ourselves, did we ever actually understand the meaning of semantic search? Like, Did we understand it? Or did we just assimilate it to the point where we understood the context of its usage and smiled and nodded and moved along? And over the years, we've expanded our knowledge on it. But it, it it is the fundamental of understanding intent. And that's what the search engines have always been trying to focus on is the customer's intent. Forget the keyword, it's the intent. Because if I know what your intent is, I know all the points on the curve of your journey, and then I know exactly where to put each product and service along the way where you will be most interested and most likely to convert. Because ultimately, the internet is about money. So that is where we're at. We're on a money curve. And intent gives us very clear understanding for that. When I wake up in the morning and I say, hey, I want coffee, my coffee machine breaks. You know, the only focus I have for the rest of my day is replacing my coffee maker. And so my intent, everything I do that day will be to get me to the solution to my problem. Problem being broken coffee maker, solution being new, better, improved, how fast can I get it here? 
And we know what that curve looks like generally today. Go to Amazon, look for best coffee maker, read a few reviews, look at a bunch of stars and numbers next to them, see which one can be delivered today, tomorrow, or the next day, what the price tag is, click a button. That's my curve today. Which, which then begs the question, Google's kind of knowledge panels for products. Right. Is that going to solve the problem for them? Is that going to put them on an even footing with uh, no. Amazon? No, it doesn't. So, and I've had this theory for a long time, um, you know, and, and solving that, Amazon approached this by solving the final mile first. That right. was their approach to this, right? I don't know that in the early days of solving the final mile to the consumer, getting the product from a warehouse to my hands, I don't know that Amazon was necessarily thinking of take over the world um, mm -hmm. during that kind of growth period. Um, I do believe now, however, they're in a position to take over the world because actually building a search engine is the easy part. It turns out um, building a knowledge graph. Yeah, I know. It seems weird to say this, right? But sorry, just a really quick question. Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. Amazon have got a knowledge graph of products and they're trying oh, to absolutely. build a knowledge graph of the rest of the world, whereas Google have got a knowledge graph of the rest of the world, but they're struggling to build the product knowledge graph. That and Google is also not the final fulfiller. Yep. And so instead of being able to set the terms of fulfillment and therefore set consumer expectation, Google is kind of held hostage to every fulfiller and the expectation that gets set individually, which means me as a consumer, my expectation is constantly being moved forward and back when it comes to getting products from Google. One's a great experience, one's less so. With Amazon, it's much more straightforward. We can have this to you today. We can have this to you tomorrow. This will be delivered to you between these dates. And it's very obvious. So our general consensus expectation has been refined. And Amazon's usually pretty good at hitting that you know, expectation. And therefore, over years and a decade, we just come with that expectation that fulfillment isn't the problem for them. But with Google, you can show me a great product, but it's from a one-off manufacturer who fails to get the delivery out because COVID is del delaying production. That slowed things down. They haven't updated their website on it, but they told Google they have it in stock. Turns out it took them a week to produce it. Then one of their people went home early one day on a Thursday, didn't come in on Friday, and it only shipped on Monday. And now I'm the consumer sitting here two weeks later. I still don't have a shipping confirmation for my product, but you have my money. And I'm looking at that going, damn you, Google. I would have just shopped on Amazon and just went with that. And, and so, okay, so there's this, we've got the mom and pop stores that are really going to suffer from this idea. You know, and so let's come back now to knowledge graph, okay? Mm -hmm. So you're a mom and pop. Um, you know Me? something fundamental. Well, just you, you, you're going to stand in for mom and pop, okay? Thank you very much. I'm pop. Uh, well, maybe more pop than mom, but, you know, you get it, right? <laughs> yep. I, I can't tell if that's actually a dress shirt you're wearing or maybe a, a dress. <laughs> Lovely stop, comment. So. Thank you very we'll much. We'll just give you a pop and we'll leave it at that. Um, but but you, um, you have all of your products, your services. You know what everything is that's available. Um, you step forward and say, hey, you know what? Um, you know, we're not that sophisticated. We don't have that big a budget. Um, you know, there's only a limited number of people, limited amount of time. What do I got to focus on? And as it turns out, um, you know, people shopping from voice is growing. And so I want to make sure I'm in Amazon. And I have to make sure that when people ask Amazon about my product or service, that Alexa can answer. 
That is not something that happens because Amazon crawls your website. That is something that happens because you share your knowledge graph via an API with Amazon. And so if you are not sharing via an API, when someone asks Alexa for information about a product or service, it legitimately does not know about you because Amazon can only find, vet, consume, and go live with so much data in any one minute. And while they are feverishly doing that, it's the vetting part that becomes problematic. That's the real problem. Anyone can produce an API, maybe it's loaded with garbage, and then that garbage is training the machines and nobody wants that, so you have to police this up front. Policing it requires humans. There's only so much machine learning can do right now before it goes off the rails and you've got an idiot teaching an idiot stupid things. Like That's (laughs) not how you want that to grow. And, and sorry, but th- but then that brings us back to Google with uh, the shopping thing, saying we're going to right. open the top and just let anybody in. It's becoming organic right. with a bit of paid on top, which is the right. same model as the ten blue links, more or less. Right, and and ultimately, I believe they've had to do that because that's the way to compete with Amazon. Because Amazon has that; just Amazon has it within their own borders, mm. and it is a major, major hurdle. You see Google getting partnerships with companies like Walmart and saying, we're going to partner with Walmart. We're going to go ahead and do this. And then a year or two later, that partnership dissolves. And then it becomes, we're going to partner with everybody. And this is what we're going to do. And then it's another program where it's larger brands are part of this specific program versus a wider spread program. And it's really hard. You know, people who are loyal to Walmart or Target or Kohl's or Tesco or any large brand will generally tend to go toward them anyhow. So whether Google has a direct relationship in terms of product feed and fulfillment or the person just uses Google as the find me Tesco and then they go to the Tesco website because, you know, that's how they think the Internet starts. Search on Google, click first link like that. That's that's the way it is right now. That, however, is a generational construct, and that is going to go away in the next 10 years. And And then your business is saying, what do I do now? If If people today are not learning to start with a brand query and then get to a brand website, they're starting with a question, and the filtering in the engine is bringing me back what it believes is the correct answer. What am I doing to be that? That's the fundamental question today, I think. So Google are now in a situation where they're saying, okay, we can answer your questions. We can get you the point at which if you've got no idea what you're doing or what you're looking for or what the solution might be, we can help you. But once you actually get there, we're pretty useless. We can't actually really help you. And what you're saying is branded queries are going to become more and more important. Not just branded queries. Yes, branded queries. Now, then this is really important, Okay. Everyone needs to understand your brand is not your logo. Like it's fundamental. Go back and do brand research 101 to understand all the components that go into being a brand, to building a brand. Okay. You you will never show up and say, I am a brand. Uh, You may say that, but that's not the reality. You're not a brand until someone says you're a brand, Mm -hmm. but you can act like a brand. You can be seen from the outside as a brand. And ultimately, it's those actions that define your brand, ultimately defining the brand persona, if you will. Um, there's, um, there's a really, really great YouTube video by a gentleman named Wally Brill 
B-R-I-L-L. I love that now, Wally Brill, because Brill is brilliant. So Wally is actually um, the lead evangelist for um, Google's uh, voice program, okay? Right, okay? And so he does a great, great video on brand persona. And it is, to me, it is required watching over and over if you're thinking brand because it goes into great detail in about 12 minutes explaining what a brand persona is, how you build one, what you have to input into it, uh, and how you align with your target audiences. If you don't do those things, then the concept of a branded search is kind of lost on you. It will only ever be a one-dimensional name of website equals brand. And it's so much more than that, okay? Um, so when you start thinking in this third dimension of brand, basically, then you start to realize that it's these tangential things. Like we had a client, I'll give you this example. We had a client, uh, they were an, an optometrist, an eye doctor, and uh, they were um, they wouldn't tell us why. We didn't really ask why. Um, they would uh, close the business. Their business hours for their listing were uh, every Wednesday were closed. And like the only thing that we noticed, because we're not an agency, we're a platform, we see data, but it's mm. nothing we action on. Um, but we noticed over time that like people would complain about him not being open on Wednesdays and there was never any responses to that. And we didn't really understand why. And it just happened to be the account executive one day was talking to the optometrist and asked him, like, why are you always closed on Wednesdays? And he said, oh, I donate the entire day with myself and my staff. We are open but we are open as a free clinic for people in the community who cannot afford eye care. They can come in. We do everything free of charge. We just generally are not open to the public. We're not processing payments, like that kind of thing. And, and the account rep was like, what? Like, where is this on your website? Why aren't you talking about this? Like, you need to share this message. And the optometrist had no idea that it would be a big deal. And from his perspective, he thought, well, the people complaining about it on Wednesday don't understand the good I'm doing. And to be completely clear, I am absolutely certain that at some point, the accountant for this business told him that this is a great tax write-off. So like, whatever, there are multiple reasons why you would do this with your time. But the minute he lit up on the website, why they closed on Wednesdays, yeah. Massive community support. He saw a spike in business that's still going to this day. He's taken business from competitors, even competitors who then went on to say, we, we've been doing the same thing. We've been doing it longer. Doesn't matter, right? The community has said he's our favorite and that's where we go. Yeah, I mean, that, no, sorry, that, that brings me to, to Ryan Foland, who was talking to me on the show a few weeks ago about the fact that you've got to push forward what it is that makes you special. What, what is, what's your, yes. what's your special, I don't know what you call it, a grain in French. So uh, and and that's a really world, good example. Yeah, if you're in the sales world, world, it's your unique selling proposition, your USP. So, so this is more, it's saying, what what have I yes. done that pushes it that extra mile? Sorry, that's what exactly. Ryan was talking about. And he was talking exactly. about my course, my brand surf course. And he was saying, you've pushed it the extra mile because you've actually spent much more time re-recording, re, re yes. going through it, rewriting, re-recording, doing the slides properly. You should push that. And I don't. And he's right. And this is another good example. It's saying, I've gone that extra mile, but nobody yes. knows it. Sorry, go ahead. Absolutely. And, and look, Everyone's going to claim philanthropy. Everyone's going to claim, you know, that they donate to these charities, support these charities. That's fine. And it's good. It should be that way. But to your point, Jason, it's what is the extra mile? 
Why should I, as a consumer, in a sea of businesses who apparently are all philanthropic, why should I love you? And when you give me that reason, and let's be clear, the reason you are saying I should love you may not be a reason that resonates with me. And 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 therefore, that's okay. What it means is I'm helping you define that I'm not your audience. And if you're telling me, no, no, my audience is my entire community. No, that is not the case at all. That eye doctor's audience is not the entire city he works in. Because a lot of those people will not need eye care. And I wear glasses, you wear glasses, but hey, a lot of people in my community do not wear glasses. I saw Gina sure. coming in here, right? Right, uh, yeah. I am wearing glasses, so I am a yeah, good client, exactly. but I'm in the wrong town, so it's no use. But, <laughs> but I think that is also very important from my point of view as a, as a very naive businessman branding person is thinking, I want to reach out to everybody. I think I can help everybody, and that's a complete mistake. Well, I mean, to a degree, yes, you should have that mentality, that ethos, that work ethic. Absolutely. You do, however, will we will do yourself a massive favor if before you start the outreach, you do a little bit of refinement on targeting because there is nothing more soul crushing than putting yourself out there and hearing from people telling you, I don't need your help. I'm good. Thank you. You know, and that comes in many forms that comes in. You've done a mass email and nobody responds. There's no uptick in sales or engagement or in signups or in anything. But if you do the refinement and you actually say, well, look, I'm an optometrist, so I'm only going to talk to people who are pre-diabetic, diabetic, who have, um, you know, current eyewear users, um, have vision problems, like all of these people are now my target group. How do I refine this list? And you may find that the list you have isn't any good. And, you know, so like you may have to start over. But as you do this, the refinement is again helping you define your brand. It's going that extra mile because you're not really going the extra mile if I don't need you and you're telling me about it, then it's just open bragging about nothing that matters to me. And that's the opposite of what you're trying to do. The feelings that that engenders with me are like 180 degrees. Right, are you suggesting that, that branding is all about indicating how you're going the extra mile for your potential clients, your audience? No, I think that that's an important signal for right. a business to be aware of, okay? I think at its core, what defines branding is your actions. It's the right. actual actions you take. So look, you and I can sit down and say, at the end of this, we are going to spend five hours in the editing suite, putting all this together, adding little symbols, adding little anecdotes, adding little sounds, we are going to cover up any stumbles that either one of us have made. We can do like we can say we're doing all of that and we can tell people that that's the way the show approaches the entire being of every episode, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to get someone to follow us the first time and we want to exude quality by explaining quality. And then they come in and they realize it's just two guys sitting here, one with a green screen that isn't even ironed, talking back and forth about things. And if he makes a mistake, he corrects himself. We cut each other off. There is no quality control. You're getting a live unvarnished version of this because this is the authentic reality. But the, the quality control is that I only invite brilliant people. <laughs> See? But, <laughs> but... Now, ultimately, Jason, you can say that. I appreciate it. It makes me feel great. You know, and I'm a charmer, yeah. 
My dogs agree with you. I am brilliant <laughs> twice a day, every day. I am brilliant for food. But what actually makes that statement true or false is people consuming the product, looking at the set list and saying, oh, I like this person. That was brilliant. I never thought of that before. That blew my mind. And so now suddenly Jason's statement about I filter by inviting brilliant people, it has a lot more depth to it. And the brand then for the actual product is much deeper on its own because of the actions that have been taken. Not because you said you invite brilliant people, you know, it's it's the age old adage, right? Look, you can you, tell you you have to live up to the hype. I mean, from my point of view, I invite people who offer to talk to me about something I don't really know that well. And today we absolutely completely missed the target because we didn't talk about what we we're supposed to be talking about. But that's part but that's part of the beauty of it for me is that if we get involved in a conversation that is truly interesting, why would I break that off? Why wouldn't I continue with a conversation like this one, which actually took us to places we didn't think of before? And and listen, I'll say this, Jason. If you want me back to talk about the other stuff, we can do that too. I'm happy to do that. Uh, it's it's just there are so many things that businesses need to be focused on. And I think something like Knowledge Graph, small and medium businesses completely overlook this because to them, that's what powers Google. And so they, to them, it's not a them thing. It's it's a Google thing. It's a yeah. Bing thing. It's an Amazon thing. No, the knowledge graph is a concept that can be applied to your own business. It's yeah. all about identify the entity, list out the attributes for the entity. And then when you have all of your entities with all of their attributes, connect all the relationships between those. That is what a knowledge graph is. That, that's what Google is doing. And you can do that for your business. You can and, talk and, about, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, sorry. And that's the point. I mean, Andrea Volpini from Wordlift, once again, he was saying, create your knowledge graph first. What, what, who are you? What do you offer in all the details possible? And then yes. you choose how you present it to all these machines, Amazon, Google, yes. Facebook, Apple, um, and, Bing, Microsoft, whatever. And you say, this is what I want to present to you. And that's where you, the power and the control yes. comes. Exactly. And if you just go, please just deal with it because I've got no idea what I'm doing, you're completely well, leaving them to it. Sorry, go ahead. If you, are, if you are still focused on, here's a bunch of keyword research, I'm going to put up a bunch of content, and I want to make sure that's crawlable, I want to make sure that's indexable. Um, you are living in the world of five to 10 years ago in search. If you want to live in the world of five to 10 years from now, you have to be building out a knowledge graph and it will get complex and it will require maintenance. But this is the core fundamental because you can imagine a world easily in 10 years where generationally and from a technology standpoint, we are not sitting at our laptop typing into a box on Google we are talking to a wearable device or the wearable device, any of our devices is listening to us, inferring from context, intent and information and preloading results into an app or a wearable so that when we engage right there for us. And that brings us to Google Discover, which is this whole kind of thing is if Google understands who you are, what yes. you offer, what your topics are, it can start yes. pushing you towards the people who Absolutely. might be interested in you. And uh, Jess Schultz was talking to me about that on this same program a few yes. weeks ago. Brilliant stuff she was talking about. I mean, what do you think about Google Discover? Let, let's wrap it all up with Google Discover. Where's that taking us? 
Okay. So, um, you know, on one hand, I want to put on a tinfoil hat and say uh, this could lead us into dark places because now you've got a lot of bias happening, a lot of confirmation bias happening. And um, I noticed this with YouTube, for example. I go in and I get on a topic and I start watching all these videos on it. And then I get burnt out on the topic. And when I want to move, Google is still feeding me that same topic. Blatantly long in the background. And I'm like, I'm over it. Stop. And I have to take the conscious effort to now search on a bunch of different things to hopefully repopulate it. And so I, I, I love that example. Sorry, excuse me, just to interrupt you. Yeah, I love no. that example because I've started watching YouTube more and more since I've developed the YouTube channel. I've pushed it forward. Yeah. So I actually watch it more. And I right. keep coming across the same problem. You keep going, Yes, I want I want a bit of variety here and I'm not getting it anymore. Yes. So I have to say, what can I look for that's going to change this landscape exactly. for me? And you have to be careful what you look for. Oh, we're, sorry, because... we're ranking third for your name. This always happens when Excellent. we're live. We rank Excellent. third. Or we rank well, but, you top know, I think people's that makes names. sense. And hey, we got nine people up here. This is awesome. Thank you, Dwayne. <laughs> Thank you for being live with us. That is fantastic. And, and what, what I do love about this, sorry, and as you say, it is logical, is that YouTube is saying, right, okay, this is live. Maybe you want to go and see it. If, and that's yeah. the thing, topics. If you're in this topic or if you're interested in this topic, this is something right. that could well interest you. Well, and I think that like the, so the notion of discover is great and it's really important. It's the future of where we're going to go. Mm-hmm. Let's face it. Google is not indexing everything. They don't need to. They have enough answers for the questions that are commonly asked by most oh, people on the internet today. They don't need everything and to have everything and to continue to consume everything is hugely expensive. So at some point that tops out indexing and crawling top out because they have enough. Now the pie is not endless. Now we're all fighting for our slice of the pie. Right now, that fight doesn't exist because the pie size just keeps getting bigger. So there's always enough room for more. Mm. But at that same time that that shift happens, Google Discover is portending a world for us where we have the actual answer waiting for us before we even realize we've had a question about it. And we know that that's going to happen because the computational power is there for it. The ability to store all of the most likely questions to come from a stem of the conversation that Dwayne and Jason are in right now are X. And therefore, here are all the questions. And any machine can look at this in real time and say, well, I can't parallel in this. What I can do is very fast in a serial fashion, get to the most relevant one. So fast, a human will think that it's human-like when I select, here's the answer to that question. Or Dwayne and Jason said X, and therefore this piece of information is important. Jason called out, we're probably ranking number three because we're live right now. And therefore, the next logical question is, how do I optimize for live feeds on YouTube in Google? Here's an article someone wrote. Here's a video someone did. When someone asks about that, that's the next logical answer to the question. And boom. Right. Um, <laughs> All right. Brilliant. No, no, actually, I, I love that. That was absolutely ah, brilliant. And in fact, that closed the conversation beautifully. You are a wonderful talker. That was an amazing conversation. Not what we intended. A quick goodbye to end the show. Thank you, Dwayne. One of the best conversations I've had in a long time. Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Brilliant, man. Thanks a lot. Absolutely.